Well, good morning and uh, welcome to Journey. Good to have everybody with us. I'm Randy. If I haven't met you, I'd love to do so. We're grateful that you've come. And grateful is kind of the theme of this time of year, uh, is it not, leading up to Thanksgiving? I don't know about you, but I am grateful for these students uh, that led us in worship. Amazing. Awesome. You know, uh, I was thinking about when I was their age, and I would have had a hard time getting in front of you, let alone doing anything that sounded amazing as, as they did. So uh, that, that is awesome and so grateful. Also grateful that we're getting the time of year for giving. And uh, you probably noticed in the back, or if you haven't yet, the um, angel tree is back there. So this is the time of year that we're moving into generosity and um, beyond uh, what we normally do. So I want to encourage you to keep that in mind. Just a lot of cool things are happening as we kind of move into the latter part of the year. We've been in a study of the book of Acts for several weeks now, and we're going to continue on that today. And if you study the Bible very much and read the Bible at all, you have probably heard the name Paul. And that is because to next to Jesus Christ himself, there has no, been no more influential Christian for the cause of Christ who has ever lived. Uh, in fact, without Paul, we wouldn't even be here today. And Christianity certainly would never have the kind of impact that it's had on the entire world. And uh, most of us, he was the apostle to the Gentiles. Most of us would probably say that we are Gentile in, in background, which is a good thing uh, because uh, we would never know the gospel had not been for him. Uh, Paul wrote half the New Testament or so, so his life is pretty important, and we're going to take some time as we move into this uh, account of his conversion to talk about his life and about his leadership. Now, there's a few things that jump out about us. We talk about Paul kind of flippantly, Paul did this and that, but let's talk about some things specifically about him that make his life amazing. And one of those things is that Paul was born privileged. Uh, Paul was raised in a devout Christian, a godly home. If you're raised in a Christian home, you have an advantage uh, in your life, no doubt. Uh, so thank your parents for that. If not, then you can create a Christian home of your own. But Paul was raised in a devout, godly home. His family was well-respected. They were members of a religious group, the Jewish group called the Pharisees. And so he was set up to have a privileged and also a wealthy life as a Jewish leader. But somehow along the way, he also was a Roman citizen, which was kind of unusual, and that allowed him to have uh, very special rights, special opportunities, and also some really unique legal protection. So he was very privileged. Secondly, Paul was also tough physically. Uh, we don't read about this, but I mean, there are some individuals that just are pretty tough when it comes to doing things and getting through difficult times. For example, Paul did a lot of traveling sometime. Uh, in that day, it was very difficult. They didn't jump on a plane or a car. They had to travel. Most of the travel by walking. Uh, and many times, he would walk up to 20 miles a day uh, over a very rough terrain. So it was, uh, it was a hard way to get around. Paul endured a lot of physical opposition, uh, mentally and verbally and physically as well. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says this, five times I received 39 lashes by Jews or from Jews. So he was beaten five times, and when they did that, they would whip them, 39 lashes, just short of 40. If they went over 40, they were in trouble with the law, so they would stop at 39. But five times was beaten in that way. Three times I was beaten with rods by the Romans. Once I was stoned by my enemies. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the open country, dangers on the sea, and dangers among false brothers. 
labor and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and lacking clothing. How many of us could even come close to a history like that explain what we had gone through physically? There was one time when he was beaten outside the city, left for dead, God came to, got up and went inside and started preaching again. You know, he kind of makes us preachers feel pretty um, embarrassed for uh, sometimes our lack of suffering, you know, but Paul went through a lot physically. Another thing about Paul, he was brilliant. He was brilliant. He studied under Gamaliel, who was one of the best rabbis of that day from the greatest rabbi family. So he studied there, a leading scholar. He knew and memorized the Old Testament. In fact, in his writing, he quotes it over a hundred times and then preached it as well. He was fluent in Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, and Latin. Someone called him the wisest man uh, after Christ. So he was trained in the best university with the best teachers, the best education available. He could debate, he could argue, he could discuss any subject and always come out on top. Another thing about Paul is that he was very prolific in his writing. The Bible has 66 books. It was written over the period of 1,500 years by 40 different authors who were inspired by God. The Old Testament has 39 books. The New Testament has 27. And of those 27, Paul wrote 13 for sure and probably 14 of those books. That is the book of Hebrew. I think he wrote it as well. Basically half the New Testament. And in the book of Acts that we've been studying here uh, the last few weeks, his story and ministry covers chapters 13 through 28, which is over half the book. So if you were to take the life and the writings and the teachings out of, of Paul out, you would lose most of the New Testament. So Paul was very prolific in what he wrote. Here's another thing about him, he was single. Almost everybody in his uh, place in life would have probably been married as a young man. But most scholars agree that his wife probably passed away, he was a widower. So it's very evident in his writings and his travel that he is unmarried. He could never possibly travel and move around and live like he did with the wife and children as well. He's very focused on his work, and uh, that may have been because he didn't have a family to care for. In fact, at one point he said, I would prefer that all of you were like me, that you didn't have a family, you could focus solely on God. So he didn't have a home, and with the exception of his friends, some of whom abandoned him at the worst possible time, he had no one to come home to. So the church was his family, it was his life, he devoted his life to it. Paul lived an amazing life and a productive life for Jesus Christ. So that's just a real quick look at the life of Paul, which is incredible. You know, we can divide the life of Paul into two sections. His life is as Saul and his life as Paul. Now, don't get confused about that. And I'm probably going to interchange the name here, but it's, it's the same person. And the, and the reason for that is that uh, his name had a Jewish pronunciation, which was Saul. So when he was a Jewish leader, he would naturally be called Saul. But his name also had a Roman or Gentile pronunciation, which is Paul. And so whenever he was the Gentile to the, or the apostle to the Gentiles, he would use the name Paul. And so God even designated him to be Paul going forward. So like he had two names, he also had two lives, which were very different. You know, when you think about it, all of us have two lives, don't we? We have our life before Christ, and then we have our life after Christ. Now, more than likely, your life, as we're going to, uh, the life that you have is not as different as the life that Saul had, as we're going to describe today, but you have two lives, and they probably are different, and Paul's life was very different as it was divided between his 
life before Christ and the life afterwards. Now, the book of Acts tells us about the life uh, of Saul before and how he met Christ. And the first time that we read about him was a couple weeks ago in Acts chapter 7. And if you remember in that story, Saul was being stoned and they laid their coats down at the feet of a young young man named Saul. Excuse me, Stephen was being stoned. Whoa. Stephen was being stoned and they laid their coats down at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now in the Bible, when you hear the word young man, it's always someone under 40. So if you're under 40, you're still a young man. And uh, I'm not a young man anymore, pretty obviously, but that's kind of what it defines. So it's, it's likely that Saul was probably in his mid-30s when we start reading about him. And he was born, strangely enough, about the same time as Jesus. Because, but uh, there's no mention of them ever interacting in the Gospels. It's likely that they did because of Saul's position. Uh, but most scholars uh, agree they probably were similar in age. And the time period that we're talking about here is probably about AD 35 or 36. So Jesus has already been put to death. He came to life. He's resurrected. The church began. We're a few years past that. And then Saul gives his life to Christ, 35, 36 AD. So let's pick up the story in Acts chapter 9 as we kind of jump into our account and our study uh, through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So if you remember, Stephen's death ignited a passion against the church, uh, to destroy the church, specifically in, in Saul. And his goal was to destroy Christians everywhere. He's breathing out threats, the Bible says. Acts chapter 8, it says that Saul began to destroy the church Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So Saul is an angry, violent man, convinced of his own righteousness, his own goodness, and literally a terrorist against Christians. Now, what he was doing was illegal, really, uh, in that place and time, but he was doing it with direct permission and, in fact, approval of the highest Jewish authorities, and the Romans kind of looked the other way. Remember, during this time, the Jews were under the Romans, and like we talked about in the, the death of Jesus, they didn't have permission to condemn someone to death. The Romans had to do that, but they had a lot of pull and a lot of sway. Jesus was a public uh, uh, person uh, and well-known, and so they couldn't do that without Roman authority, but Christians were considered to be nobodies in that day. So the Romans looked the other way. The Jewish officials tried to wipe the church out through persecution, and Saul was the leader in this. So as this persecution spread in Jerusalem, the Christians began to leave, like we talked about last week. They took the gospel to other towns and Samaria, and Saul began to see his greatest fear happen. He began to see Christianity spread everywhere. So Saul got permission from the high priest to arrest any believers that he could find, drag them back to Jerusalem, imprison them, persecute them, perhaps even kill them. Notice it says he's looking for people who are committed to the way, which is what believers were called back in that day. You know, Jesus had said in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so the critics of the church in that day mocked Jesus and called the church the way. Oh, they belong to the way. It was kind of mockery because of what Jesus had said. You know, Jesus was controversial because he said he was the only way to the Father. 
What he did was love, but what he said offended people. He was the only way. And that offended Saul. And you know, it still offends people today because the light of Jesus exposes their darkness and shows them that they're not on the way. You know, I think Saul was a lot of, like a lot of people today in our world. He was religious, he was spiritual, but he was not a Christian. In fact, Saul would be what we might call a religious zealot. Over the last few years, we've seen the danger of that, hadn't it? Where you're the only one that's right and you're gonna wipe out those who aren't uh, through uh, uh, Islam, you know, we see that. Saul was elected in a lot of ways. He thought he was on a mission for God. In fact, in Galatians 1, he said, I persecuted God's church to an extreme degree and tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. I mean, think about that. I know a lot of people who think that they are right with God because they have a religious family tradition. They would be what we might call cultural Christians, people that just are, you know, they're doing, going through the motions. They believe in God, believe there's, you know, Jesus, but they don't have a relationship. Talk a good talk, but you don't walk the walk. And so what the Bible tells us, it's not enough to believe in God. It's not enough to believe that you're doing something great for God. You have to make sure that it really is for God and that you're living for Jesus because he is the way to God. So Saul made it his mission to destroy Christianity And he was willing to work hard and go out of his way to do it. In fact, he was willing to travel 150 miles. Now that would be at least a week's journey. So Saul was willing and wanted to travel 150 miles just to find and arrest Christians. I mean, he was passionate about what he was doing. You have to give him that. Some said he was sincere, but he was sincerely wrong. Now, why did he go to Damascus? Well, Damascus was a, a commercial and a cultural center in that day where caravans converged from all different directions. They all came together. It was a melting pot in the ancient world. It was a place where the Christian faith had begun to flourish. And Saul realized that from Damascus, the gospel of Jesus would go everywhere. From the Roman road would take the message and people would spread throughout the world. And so for that reason, he wanted to stop the the influence of Christianity. And so he asked the high priest, could I have a warrant to go to Damascus and arrest Christians, both women and men, and I want to do it in the synagogues. Now, why the synagogues? Because he knew that those synagogues would be full of worshipers in these local assemblies. Countless believers would come to know about Jesus. There he would go. He would, you know, be quiet, just kind of looking around him, and then he would arrest and take them back into into uh, imprisonment. So here Paul planned to make some multiple arrest. But as you know, that was not to be. And we pick up the story in verse three. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you'll behold what you must do. The men traveled with Saul, stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days, he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. So here is Saul who is... um, coming into town, always in control, always the, uh, you know, the one intimidating is now intimidated. He is helpless. He is blinded here, blinded by light from heaven. He fell to the ground. He was terrified. It's kind of interesting that God is mirroring his, his spiritual blindness with physical blindness. 
He doesn't see God's plan. Now he doesn't see anything at all, you know? He doesn't see the glory of God, so God takes his physical sight. And then Saul hears a voice asking, why are you persecuting me? You know, this was obviously Jesus who was saying this, but what did Jesus mean by saying, by asking Saul this? Saul wasn't hurting Jesus. He wasn't hunting, I mean, he wasn't hunting Jesus. Jesus had been resurrected. Jesus was in heaven. What is he saying here? Saul was after the church of Jesus Christ. So Jesus said, you are persecuting them. You're persecuting me. You know, the metaphor that the Bible uses most often about the church is that it is the bride of Christ. Ephesians chapter five tells us that Christ loves and cherishes the church like a husband and wife. They're one. So if you attack one, you attack the other. When someone attacks the church of Jesus Christ, they're attacking Jesus as well. They're persecuting him as well. And Saul's attacking the church, the bride. He's attacking Christ. Now, obviously, because physically he is blinded, Saul's overwhelmed. So he asked, who had blinded him? Who, who are you? And he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. And Saul instantly knew who Jesus was. There is no doubt, although he's not mentioned in the gospel accounts, there is no doubt that Saul in Jerusalem, sitting on the Sanhedrin at the time that he did, had most likely heard Jesus teach. He had most likely sat in judgment of him in his trial before uh, he was put to death, before the crucifixion. And Saul asked the most important question in the world, who are you, Lord? You know what? That's a question that every one of us need to ask. We need to come to the place. Hopefully, it's not going to be by being physically blinded, but we ought to come to the place where we're asked, who are you, Lord? All of us need to ask and find the answer. And the answer is Jesus. He is the Son of God. You know, other translations go on here and ask a second question that was asked by Saul, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? And that's our response as well. What, do we, what does Jesus want us to do? Saul thought he was in control. Saul thought he had it all going. He was pursuing, but what was happening is that he was the one being pursued by God. And that's how it is with us. We think we have life going great, going our way, but God's pursuing us. In fact, God pursues us even before we pursue him. And that's how it was with Saul. God had chosen him to be his man. He had called him. There had probably even been occasions that Saul had had thoughts about doing the right thing. What does God want me to do? But Saul was evading God until God struck him blind and God got his attention. You know, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that Stephen, who was the first martyr, had prayed as he died that God would not hold the sin of his murderers against them, but that they would come to Jesus. And now this prayer was being answered. God was confronting Saul. And Saul was about as far from Jesus as anyone could be, but he was not too far for God to find him and for God to reach him. It's a great reminder for us today to, to pray for those people that we know who need to be saved. No matter how far they may seem from God, they're never too far for God to reach them. And maybe it'll be in miraculous ways. God was moving in Saul's life to bring him to repentance. But he first of all had to get his attention. He had to be humbled. You know, it's always best to stop for God before God stops us, isn't it? Last week, I shared the story about uh, the lady in the hospital that I knew I should go see, and I didn't go see until I ended up in the hospital with her. You know, God has a way of stopping us, and his will would be done. So it's always easier to take the initiative on that. Saul was willing in a place where God was going to do some powerful things in his life. And Saul was literally brought to his knees and was helpless. 
The Bible says, the many was with saw the light, they heard a sound, but they didn't hear Jesus' voice. So they led him into town, into Damascus, and they left him. They abandoned him, basically. These were his men on his team until he is blinded and suddenly he's out and they must have just left and went home. And Saul had three days of blindness with no food, no water. But you know what? God had a plan. God was working it out. And we pick up the story in verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a voice, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. Ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Can you imagine being Ananias? If you've ever been called on a mission by God to go do something you don't want to do, this is probably one of the worst missions ever because Saul was notorious for killing Christians. And God's telling you, I want you to go and see him. Ananias doesn't know what's happened to this point. He just gets the command to go. Ananias was just an ordinary man. He wasn't an apostle. He wasn't a deacon, elder. As far as we know, he just was an ordinary believer, not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible beyond this story. But God had this extraordinary job for him to do. He was fearful, but he was willing to go. Get up and go, God said. And God assured Ananias that Saul was harmless. He was blind and he was expecting him. He's seen a vision as well. He is praying. And also Ananias must have known that this was no ordinary convert. That Saul was being called to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, to kings, to Jews, and to the whole world. And that God was going to use him in a mighty and very unique way, but also that he would have to suffer greatly. God had a plan with all of Saul's advantages, all the things we talked about earlier, who he was, his history, his past, his ability, his knowledge. God was going to use him in a powerful way to win the Gentile world. In verse 17, then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Although he was hesitant, Ananias was faithful and obedient. He went to the house. He met Saul, placed his hands on him. He called him brother, powerfully communicating the love of God. He was willing to do what was most difficult because he knew that God had a plan. You know, we oftentimes say that Saul was converted on the road to Damascus, but that really isn't true. That's where Saul was humbled on the road. His conversion began after three days as he prayed and sought God. It happened when God broke through his spiritual blindness and Ananias came and shared the gospel with him. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and he was baptized and he received his physical sight back as well. You know, we're not told everything that Ananias told him, kind of a brief account here that must have been a long conversation, but we certainly connected the dots for Saul about Jesus, about the one that he had heard about, you know, and convinced him who Jesus was. 
He shared the need to repent of his sins and to be baptized, which he did immediately, even before he ate. So like, we're going to go do it before we eat, even though he had eaten or drunk for three days. You know, I think Saul's a great reminder to us that we are saved by grace, not by our good works. I mean, think about that. This is the worst man on the planet at that point, probably. And this is why when Saul realized this, this probably gave even new meaning to his words that he wrote in Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Can you imagine how unworthy Saul felt of all of this? The one he had been an enemy of had now called him to be a friend. He said later in 1 Timothy 1, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a, and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. So even though Saul was self-righteous and thought he was a godly man, he began to realize how wicked he really was. He was trying to do something for God, but discovered he was working against God. And yet he said, even though I'm unworthy, I'm the worst sinner of all, that God saved me. Let me tell you, if God could save Saul, he could save anyone. And if God could save me and you, he can save anyone. Never give up on anyone in life. That's the good news of the gospel. And so the day after reading this account about the amazing life of Saul, we have to think about our lives. Because to be honest with you, you like Saul, hopefully you're not that bad. You're not a persecutor or a murderer. You're not a violent person. You're not a blasphemer, which Paul said he was. But you know what? You've lived a life. All of us have lived a life without Christ. Maybe it was a short time, you know, and then we gave our life to Christ. Or maybe we gave our life to Christ and it's been less time as a believer than an unbeliever. So short or long, you had a life without Christ. Or maybe you're here today and you're still living that life without Christ. I mean, you may be a good person. You may be a religious, even a spiritual person, but you're not living for Jesus, who is the only way to God. You're not an enemy of God necessarily. You're certainly not trying to do anything to harm him, but you know you're not living for Jesus. And I would just say that hopefully you don't have to be blinded to stop and ask two important questions. Lord, who are you? And what do you want me to do? And that's the question we ought to be asking this morning. And the answer is the same as it was for Saul, to believe on the Lord Jesus, repent of your past life, good or bad, confess him as Lord and be baptized and then live a new life reflecting the glory of God. It doesn't end there, it only begins there. God had a special plan for Saul as we'll go on and read and his amazing missionary work. And God has a plan for you. No matter how good you may think you are or no matter how bad you know you are, you need Jesus. No matter how far from God you really are, it's not too far. God is seeking you. He's pursuing you. He's pulling on your heart right now. Maybe God is just speaking to you in this moment that you need to come to him. And if so, I would encourage you, don't wait for God to blind you. Don't wait for God to hurt you and knock you down. Respond to him. 
voluntarily and take the initiative. You know, we always offer a time in our, in our worship services for people to respond. And uh, we're going to have some folks up here who will be available to talk to you. If you want to talk to me after the service, you can do that. Some of you do that periodically. It doesn't have to be a direct response. But if God's calling you, I would encourage you to act when he does so. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the amazing life of Saul. God, a man who thought he was right with you until you opened his eyes to see the truth about Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would open our spiritual eyes, that we would see you and know you. We would know that you are the lover of our soul, that God, you gave Jesus for our lives so that we might be forgiven and have a relationship with you. And Lord, that we know how to respond to you by looking simply at the life of Saul. Lord, I pray this morning that you would uh, be ministering to our hearts and minds that your Holy Spirit, who is in this place, that God, he would touch us and draw us to you, bringing decisions to light, bringing sins uh, to the open that need to be repented of, confessed and repented of, Lord, uh, bringing renewed life that, God, you're calling us to. And, Lord, I pray that we would act on those things. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. And let's stand and worship him this morning.